Welcome to episode 319 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got an interview today. And it is a good one. Today we're catching up with Jonathan Coleman. He's a senior design manager at Intercom. And we dig into content strategy, capital C, capital S. We get deep in the weeds on content and working with product design. So much more. But before we can get to that, We have new supporters this week. A huge shout out to Valentine Ubaldo and Michael Canefra. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Valentine, welcome to the family. Thank you both for supporting the show. We also have support this week from Sisu. Sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data savvy designer to help build the next generation of analytics software. You can find out more at sisu.ai. That's S-I-S-U.ai. Thank you for the support, Sisu. And for those of you listening who are enjoying the show and want to support the show, this is possible. It's on Patreon, patreon.com slash design details. We are becoming a listener supported show. And if you you want to give back and help us support the the cost to to make the show, we really appreciate it. Every dollar helps. So that's at patreon.com slash design details. This week, we also have support from Flatiron School. Flatiron is where you learn how the future is being built so that you can change anything, starting with a new career in user experience and user interface design. Flatiron School is where you can learn how to become a user experience and user interface designer. They have a 24-week program at any of their global WeWork campuses or online. They have committed instructors with industry and teaching experience to help you learn how to be a designer. Flatiron is a school where you can work directly on client projects, and when you graduate, you will have a portfolio of real client work. This is useful if you are changing careers, and you can have this body of work to confidently apply for jobs and say, these are the real things that I worked on. In addition, Flatiron provides you with one-on-one support from their dedicated career coaches, and they have a money-back guarantee. There's a lot more details that you can dig into if you want to level up your skills as a designer or if you're just getting started in user experience design. Go to flatironschool.com slash design details. You can see the full details of this offer at flatironschool.com slash terms. But uh, head over to flatironschool.com slash design details and start joining the global community of change makers and learn how to become a designer. Uh, again, it's a 24-week course. You can get started at flatironschool.com slash design details. Thanks, Flatiron. All right, Marshall, we got a little bit of follow-up as well this week. We do. Okay, so mostly this is just me messing up. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and yeah, cleaning up my my past messes. Okay, so first off, I think I referred to the WebOS thing as Palm OS in our, in our last one. We were talking about the iOS 10 gestures being present like 10 years ago uh, on webOS. I call it Palm OS. My bad. Rookie. I'm just kidding. I think I said yeah. that too. So <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. Made by Palm, but called webOS. And that's a thing that I remembered once I saw it. And yeah, anyways. So, so my bad there, but fixed it. Done. Check. The record has thusly been corrected. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, and then uh, when I when I was talking about my cool thing last week, I mentioned Hobo Johnson. Hopefully some of you listened to him. And I, I talked about how their video production quality was getting better. And I, I recently saw 
uh, an interview he gave where he talked about how the label that they signed with made them do these high production value things, and their fans kind of hated him <laughs> because oh, it like, really? wasn't in line with their vibe. You know what I mean? It felt too sellout-y. So he's gone back to like producing and directing his own music videos that are like filmed on an iPhone or something. Like They're really low budget, but they're far more in line with, with, with the vibe of the band. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Like, let me, let me uh, correct my, my uh, one of the things I said was great about them is their better video production quality. Not going to be in the future, probably. I want to interject something here because I've been thinking about this lately, which is we are in a very strange period where the ability to create something that looks incredibly polished and, and of high quality the barrier to that is pretty low these days. Like there's oh, yeah. so many tools and, and like frameworks. In a lot of different industries, whether that's music or design or video production. Yeah, all this yeah. stuff. Like it, the barrier to entry is so low now. It's great. But as a result of that, we're seeing a resurgence in low production cost, not quality, but like you can tell that something is low production cost and that is appealing. Mm-hmm. It's authentic, right? Like it feels it real. It feels more authentic yep. even if it is visually or aesthetically worse. And I find that to be an interesting transition, especially like my sensibilities are like I want things to look and feel super polished, but to do anything as an independent creative, you kind of need to have a little bit of like a gritty, like not backed by money sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's just my two cents. No, I think this is this is like a big Gen Z thing, right? Like authenticity is far more important than than production quality. And if, if you know, like hired actors giving their testimony in a commercial is like a surefire way to turn off an entire generation. So yeah, I think this tracks. Yeah, so good on you, Hobo Johnson. Yeah, and and speaking of Hobo Johnson, uh, as I as I mentioned last time, I've been a fan for quite a while since that NPR Tiny Desk uh, thing first came out. And I was I was talking to some coworkers uh, who I thought might like Hobo Johnson and it, it, with the new album out. I was like, "Hey, you should check out this new album." And they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, he uh, he performed here at YouTube a couple weeks ago." Like, what the what? fuck? And you missed what the it? Fuck? And I missed it. I missed <laughs> it. Yeah, every Friday we have oh, like Marshall. a musical performer come in, usually who uh, you know made their start on YouTube and be- became medium to large off of YouTube. Uh, Hobo Johnson very much fits that mold, and I guess they had him uh, for the last a uh, couple weeks ago. And I don't, I don't always go to those social things because introvert, and you know, usually they're on Fridays, and I kind of either want to get work done while everybody else is <laughs> doing stuff, or I want to go home. So don't always go to those, oh, and it bit man. me in the ass, and I, yeah. I regret everything. You need to just sign up for like the notifications or something, so you know who it, who it is. Yeah, I get the emails. I just I just don't always read them. <laughs> I have a thousand other emails Classic. to read. Classic. I am so yeah. so disappointed in myself, but yeah. So that's the that's the follow up. That's the catch up. Okay. Well, speaking of introversion, uh, today we're catching up with Jonathan Coleman, a self described introvert. As we mentioned, Jonathan is a senior design manager at Intercom, and we have a great interview ahead, digging into content strategy uh, and collaborating with product design and so much more. So here we go, our interview with Jonathan Coleman. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. For people who 
don't know about you or haven't come across your work, could you describe a little bit about yourself and, and what you do day to day? Yeah, sure. Uh, I always lead off by saying that uh, I've been working on the web since 1994, so I'm really grumpy it's not done yet. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so I wear this baseball cap and I'm older than I look. I'm in my mid-40s. Uh, so yeah, I lead the global content design team at Intercom uh, based in Dublin, Ireland. Moved there from uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, which is why I have this amazing accent. And I worked at uh, Facebook for about five and a half years. And uh, prior to that was at REI, uh, spent about a decade working in environmental conservation as a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, working on public health. Uh, and prior to that, I used to write uh, technical manuals for IBM, which is exactly as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> oh, wow. My dad used to work for IBM. Oh, yeah. See? Okay. I, I was there like right after they stopped making everyone wear suits every day. So <laughs> oh, man. they're beginning to relax. It was an exciting time. Was that the prerequisite? You're like, no suits, I'm in. <laughs> Pretty much. I had also interned with them when I was in college. So it was a great way to pay off student debt was, I think, the real motivation. Gotcha. Well, I want to start a little bit from the beginning, just understanding how you got into like design and then probably more specifically like the content part of design. So where did that interest come from or, or where could you pinpoint like, oh, this is a, a field that I want to go into? Was it at IBM? No, it was probably before that. When I was a kid, I did a lot of, I mean, these sound like the worst hobbies ever, but I, I just did a lot of reading and writing. Nerd. <laughs> right, exactly. You can imagine how popular I was at a parties. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I worked on the, you know, things like a high school yearbook, uh, started a high school newspaper. I became a a columnist for my local hometown newspaper and did like a monthly column for the the city next door. So it's just doing a lot of writing. But anytime I talked with someone about writing, there's always sort of this notion that like, you know, you, you've got to dedicate your life to writing if you want a career in it. And in doing like my own sort of private writing projects, even now, like I, I still think that's true. It's really hard. Like it takes a lot of time. It's hard to do that with, you know, sort of like a full-time job. But I always had the sense that like there was no future as a writer unless like you you simply got a, a high amount of pleasure just out of the act itself. And I did, but not enough to sustain me. So I was always looking for ways to integrate writing into something else. So when I was in college, uh, I worked at a writing center where I helped people solve problems with language. They were working on things like, you know, they're, what do you work on in college? I can't even remember, but like, I'm going to say <laughs> thesis, uh, dissertations. And yes, <laughs> thesis, dissertations, absolutely. You know, uh, reports on things. And I went to an engineering school, so it was, you know, really scientific stuff. And these are people who were doing important research work that really mattered by the medium of communicating the value of that work in this case, writing, was unclear to them. Uh, they were uncertain about it. They didn't understand how it worked or how to do writing uh, in a way that was going to be effective to get their ideas across. That sort of thing always came naturally to me. So um, I really like the idea of integrating writing into something that would help other people solve their problems, which is essentially, you know, the writing version of like the product design, you know, hero origin story, like, oh, if only I could find a way <laughs> to help solve people's problems. Yeah. So that's really where it comes from. And then you put on the cape. And then I put on the cape. No capes. No capes. <laughs> okay. And uh, I tried to fly, but instead I just avoided hitting the ground when I fell. Oh, so there you go. That's a nice way it's to think about it. Falling with style. <laughs> yeah, it says Douglas Adams. That, that is not me originally. Don't, don't credit <laughs> okay. me with that. 
<laughs> I was I was quoting Toy Story, so you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's a little bit more uh, you know upper echelon than your quote, but whatever. <laughs> a little more highbrow, yeah. Very heady, very heady stuff. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit. So, when you're going through all this, did you have any sort of long term goal or plan here, recognizing that perhaps the money side of this might be hard, or at least it, at the time, everyone around you is telling you that the money side of this is going to be hard. How did you think about that? Yeah, this was um, in the 90s. So like when I wasn't listening to, I'm going to say ska music, <laughs> third wave swing, then um, yeah, then this is sort of what I was trying to figure out. And, uh, you know, I had a very influential teacher. His name was uh, Stephen Jukery, who uh, was a graduate student. And one of the things he got me to realize is that all jobs at that point were becoming information jobs. Like the new blue collar job was an information job of some kind, um, preparing information, packaging information, slicing, dicing, uh, otherwise working with information. And uh, this is right when this thing, and I know you know about this, the information superhighway, right? Heard of it. It's right when that was taken off. And so when I was in school, I started um, doing uh, web design for really anyone who would hire me. And it was a great way to, to pay my school bills. And so when I realized that there was sort of this nexus of like solving problems, but also like all the pleasures that come from like figuring out like these complex spaces, even though, I, I mean, as compared to now, the web was not as complex a space then, but uh, using writing, using design, um, trying to help someone communicate ideas clearly, like that's really where it all came together. And um, I was able to, you know, pay a lot of my uh, school bills doing web design um, and every, and the market was, was just massive because everyone wanted to get online. Everyone wanted uh as we call them, then a homepage. And uh, if you knew a few tricks with, you know, Photoshop, uh, I'm going to say lots of drop shadows and Kai's power tools, then um, <laughs> oh, man. you were, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> it really takes you back, doesn't it? Wow. Yep. Yeah. Then you could, you could be really successful doing this. So what happened uh, after you sort of discovered the information superhighway? You're doing a little bit of contract work, building websites, and what was the direction from there? Then uh, I decided to do to go all in on my um, the area of study I was in, which was um, scientific and technical communication. I got this job writing books for IBM. Um, I wrote about TCP/IP for them, file systems, Y2K, uh, oh, this uh, burgeoning uh, development <laughs> language called Java at the time, oh, wow, um, yeah. things like that. Again, technical writing is super valuable work, and like especially now that like technology is sort of everywhere, software is eating the world. Like technical writing, in my opinion, is more important than ever. It's just that like you're just a little more disconnected from people who are actually experiencing problems. There are ways of integrating technical communication directly into products. Um, that was something that was even underway back in the, in the 90s. But I, I just felt super removed from the people I was trying to help. Um, and that made it feel like it didn't matter. It made it feel kind of boring. And that's when I uh, decided to take a hard left turn and um, join the Peace Corps. And uh, that's when I uh, worked in West Africa in a tiny remote village for a couple of years in uh, Burkina Faso, which is a uh, Francophone West Africa country. That is a huge change. Yeah. Um, but the challenges were actually pretty similar. They were just like the connection was far more direct. So I was um, trying to work on public health issues, which is not just a, like these problems get characterized as things like, oh, well, it's nutrition, it's education, it's washing your hands. 
um, it's really about communication and it's, it's much more about understanding, um, and meeting people where they're at. You don't just walk in with a tool or a new water pump and expect to solve problems. Uh, West Africa is littered with water pumps that were all built by, you know, people trying to do good things, but all built with like non-local parts that weren't available. So when the, when the part broke, the pump, you know, simply wouldn't work and it couldn't be repaired or replaced. No one was taught how to do maintenance. Um, no one had any plans for what happened when that well went dry. Um, and so people would become dependent on these things. Um, and uh, then one day they would just sort of stop working and then, you know, you're sort of out of luck. Did that give you a jaded perspective of like global humanitarian efforts? Maybe. <laughs> I might have always been jaded. It's hard to tell. Um, <laughs> a lot of Peace Corps volunteers sort of go out with this sort of... Uh, you know, kind of Kevin Costner uh, dances with wolves, like, I'm going <laughs> to save my village, you know, cue the theme music. A lot of 90s references today. Sorry yeah, about love that. It. Um, we, yeah, no, keep it coming. <laughs> but if you get past that, then it's it's not a genuine experience at all. It's it's about like, okay, what's the best use of my time today? What can I do to understand the people around me better? What can I do to contribute something um, that's going to, uh, you know, last more than like a day or two? You know, what are the larger problems that we need to solve and how can we start making, you know, even small progress towards them? Um, international development is probably to some degree a wicked problem in that, like, to some degree, it's, you know, resources are unevenly distributed. Cultures are, in fact, different. Communication across them is hard and it's it's going to be hard to solve them 100%. But trying makes a difference. I was going to say, maybe for the sake of the conversation, I, I was watching Wicked Problem, uh, Wicked Ambiguity and uh, and user experience, your talk. Could you define what a Wicked Problem is? Just so we're on the same page about what that means. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So Wicked Problems uh, is this concept that was introduced in the 60s, popularized throughout the 70s by social scientists. And it's this idea that there are these problems in the world and society um, that are difficult, but almost certainly impossible to solve because their requirements are constantly changing. Our data about them is incomplete. It's impossible for us to test solutions. And the symptoms of all these wicked problems are themselves also wicked problems. Oof. So some examples of wicked problems uh, that we're, we all know about um, would be things like climate change, drug use and trade, Poverty, you know, things that we have always lived with to some degree, although climate change relatively uh, recent with the industrialization of the world. But it's not just like you decide to recycle that that glass bottle and boom, climate change done. You know, uh, take the afternoon off. You know, it's structural, so it has to do um, with the the way industry and and the economy and and global politics work. You can't just isolate one factor and solve for it and assume that you've got it. So that, that's really what we're talking about with Wicked Problems. Got it. I think we could probably end up spending a long time there just because I think that's interesting. But I, I do want to fast forward a little bit and get more into the like your development here. And so let's continue the story. So you were in the Peace Corps for five years? Oh, wow. No, uh, <laughs> actually a little bit shy of two years. Oh, two years, uh, two years. I, right. Yeah, I left uh, early because uh, my mother was sick back in the States and there there wasn't really anyone to take care of her at the time. Got it. So, so you came back and, and what did you end up doing after that? So um, I kind of had this like five, six months of just sort of drifting where I, I really had no idea what to do. 
Like I was supposed to be in West Africa at that time. It was winter in Michigan. And I don't know what you know about Michigan, but the important bit is that it's a lot colder than <laughs> West Africa. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I remember climbing up on the roof of uh, my mom's house to try to like uh, shovel off the snow of like this roof. The car got all iced over and I didn't know how to remove the ice. And so I was I had a hammer. And oh, I was no. trying to hammer the ice off the windshield. Oh, I cracked no. the windshield. Like I was just I was just sort of a wreck, right? But one of the things that really stuck with me from West Africa was this idea of desertification. I was doing a lot of writing with like uh, school groups in the US who who wanted to know like what life was like there. And one of the things I like this vision I remember having that I would write to them about was like the difference between my village in the first year I was there versus the second year. And I think I happened to arrive in my village like at a relatively lush time. Like it was sort of like rainy season. So there's a lot more greenery. But like, you know, I worked in the Sahel. So like, uh, that's a, like on the shores of the Sahara desert. And, um, in my second year, I felt like maybe I had realized this sort of like during the long dry period. It just sort of felt like the desert was advancing. And I remember like dreaming about it at night and thinking about this desert taking out like all the trees and sort of all the color of things and uh, wildlife. And so when I came back, I was uh, very lucky and privileged to be able to find work in um, the environmental nonprofit uh, space. And nonprofits in general, I'd say, like for people who are looking to get into a new field are just such an excellent place to work. Because you're surrounded by all these people who are super excited and motivated and passionate about the mission of the nonprofit. And while you may not have, you know, incredible amounts of budget to spend on things, what I found, at least at that point in time, was that nonprofits were very excited um, for you to do just about anything you want that would advance their mission that did not involve budget. And so if you think about the early days of the web, so now we're talking about like, actually probably no longer the early days, like the middle, the early middle days, so it was like 2001, 2002. This is just right before things like what we used to call Web 2.0 take off. Mm -hmm. And so what Web 2.0 did was make it so much easier for nonprofits to find their audience um, and to get in touch with them and communicate with them and build a relationship. And after that, a community. So it's like you'd go on to, I'm going to say, I don't know, Friendster uh -huh. and uh, MySpace. And you would just sort of be like, hey, who, who here likes wolves? I, I like wolves. I like owls. <laughs> and you could actually build a really strong community doing uh, exactly that sort of thing. And later on, there used to be, um, you know, things that were like green news outlets or environmental news hubs and aggregators. And so we would interact with those as well and, and place stories. So the work was really broad. Like uh, my title at the time was something like a webmaster. Um, <laughs> oh boy. But, yeah. Oh yeah. It was one of those. That dates you more than saying your actual age. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> if you've ever been called a webmaster, you definitely did work in the early 2000s. Cool. <laughs> it was a long time ago in a galaxy yeah. far, far away. Yeah. So yeah, so the idea though is that like, you know, I, I no longer know what a webmaster does uh, or if webmasters still exist. But at the time, the idea was like you could build in aspects of not just front end development, not just, you know, server side administration, 
not just like the odd Photoshop thing uh, or the odd writing thing for that matter, but there were also these concepts of marketing and earned media and what later became inbound marketing. And uh, SEO was taken off at that point, social media marketing, all these things. And nonprofits are a great place to develop skills like that because they often don't have them in-house. They can't afford to pay what like a, you know, a, a big tech company might pay. So if uh, you want to develop these skills and be around really supportive, passionate people, nonprofits are a great place to work. And that's what I did. So how long did you end up working for, for nonprofits during this time? It's shy of a decade. So I started in a um, small Great Lakes actually focused uh, conservation organization in uh, Michigan. And from there, I went to Conservation International in Washington, D.C., and then from there to the Nature Conservancy, where I spent most of my time. What were you learning about design or, or more specifically like writing and writing as a communications problem-solving tool during that period? One of the big things that was happening at that time uh, in terms of communication and solving problems was that the environment was becoming more politicized and we were grappling with this shift from what we then called global warming to uh, what it was later called, which was climate change. And that was a hard problem to solve. It was difficult to, you know, sort of get these really complex ideas across that involve things like, you know, some very hardcore science, um, geology, you know, weather. Um, these things do not just roll off your tongue. And uh, getting them in across in a way that motivated people to take action was especially difficult. I've been out of the space now for a pretty long time. So um, I don't I don't have a good sense of like what the strategies or methods are. But even at that point, it was difficult. And you know, when we were off having conversations with people online, like, hey, do you like wolves? I like wolves. There was also this very strong and growing movement of people who uh, I would think of as being climate change deniers. Um, and that made it very difficult for us to get our message across clearly because we always had to speak with that in mind. I feel like this is where words, I mean, words are just so dangerous in the way that they can be used. I don't think we need to get too deep into politics, but I think the example that stands out a lot to me is when uh, I think it's the estate tax was basically rebranded by certain lobbyists and politicians as the death tax <laughs> and like the power of of that language to just totally transform the public conversation and i imagine that had a lot of consequences for you know lobbying dollars and and people supporting politicians that somebody perceived supported a death tax like i don't know I, Lots of downstream consequences of, of small word changes like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we face this as designers all the time. Uh, I, these kinds of things are really hard. It's hard to predict what's going to happen when you make you know a word change, let alone a product change, let alone some sort of um, behavioral interaction change. If you build a product that solves some sort of problem, how does it affect the rest of the ecosystem? Because it will. And uh, that's really, if we go back to wicked problems, sort of at, like what's at the basis there. Yeah. So you, you were in, in this field for 10 years. Uh, why did you decide to leave? What happened? I needed to focus. <laughs> so like even some of the things I've talked about, like politics, uh, social media, server side admin, you know, I would go from uh, editing an HT access file, uh, which is this nerdy web thing that uh, where you can set up 301 redirects to, you know, writing something with like an actual scientist about some sort of wildlife habitat 
to uh, supporting a group of people who were doing design and writing work for a website all around the world because the Nature Conservancy, at least at that point, worked in you know uh, dozens of countries all over the place. And uh, it was all really good work, and I felt really invested and passionate about it. But... But I was also getting really burned out, um, which is, you know, a a thing that happens. And it was actually at that point that I decided that I really wanted to focus on something. And I moved into just doing SEO. So I was one of those people. I was an SEO uh, for many years and I joined REI uh, and that's where I focused on it. All right. So here's the question I have about your time at REI. Your title on your website says you are the principal experience architect. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. What does that mean? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what in fact does that mean? And how 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 do you, how does one go from an SEO to some I'm just gonna say wacky title like that? I mean it's an awesome title. It sounds <laughs> this is like the cape wearing title, like principal <laughs> experience architect. That's awesome. Yeah, so what was that? How did you how did you end up there? Here's a here's a fun rabbit hole story. So I was doing a talk once at a conference and I think I came on after either right after or right before Jared's spool mm-hmm. and uh, I you know was just sort of quickly running through my slides make sure everything was formatted correctly and you know look good on the screen and stuff like that and he was sitting there and he said hey you know I I, I got to tell you something about this slide and I was like oh you know, hey Jared Spool's gonna give me some notes on my slides like hey I'm pretty excited about this <laughs> and uh, and he said hey you know I think you're misspelling principle and oh. I did. I got my own job title wrong. Oh, no. uh, it was Prince Prince Eichel, yeah, Prince Eichel, you know, yeah. like, yeah. So I felt like the biggest dumbass on the planet. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure he doesn't remember that, but I, I certainly do. And, uh, and, but it was helpful, right? Because after that, I made sure I got it right. But it's a, it's kind of a funny story. When I joined REI, there is a woman who led their UX teams named Samantha Starmer. And she was very well accomplished in the field of information architecture and specifically what we call cross-channel information architecture. So if you imagine a retail company like um, REI, it's not just the website, right? It's not just some digital product they're building. They also have this very large group of stores all around the U.S. And how do you make sure as an experience architect and information architect, someone doing user experience, that you don't just focus on the digital experience, you also focus on the in-store experience. And if you start doing that, then furthermore, how can you move the great customer experience that REI has in their stores into online where it's much less personal, you know, you're, you're a little more removed and disconnected. So Samantha had this idea that, hey, we know that we could, we have room to grow in terms of uh, marketing, awareness, perception, and, and even conversion, you know, actual revenue with SEO. We know we can grow in SEO. What if you didn't put SEO inside your marketing organization and instead you put it on your UX and IA team so that that person um, is really focused and incentivized to focus on actual customers? Mm-hmm. And so that anything they do SEO wise becomes built into the structure for how we architect experiences. I think this is a lot more common now, but in um, the late 2000s, this would have been 2008, uh, this was pretty breakthrough thinking. And REI was very successful as a result of the strategy in SEO. We never did any of the spammy things that like, you probably all associate with SEO. And uh, it was all very user experience-based and customer-focused. And essentially just 
connecting the right audience to the right information so that they uh, could do the things they wanted to do in the outdoors. How, how did that end up looking like from a day-to-day perspective? Were you sitting next to like product designers? Were, like what was the team composition there? And then how did you, I'm curious how that ended up sort of weaving in between the in-store experience and then the website or, or was the in-store experience like a separate set of people that you just like handed things to or uh, yeah how did that work yeah it's a it's a big complex system so rei stores are uh, all all run by people in stores you know they don't sit at the rei headquarters you know working with ux nerds so we would spend a lot of time in stores but the way the team looked was um there is at that point when i started a data architect an information architect and me and that was it um, so there wasn't even, you know, what you might think of as interaction design, product design, visual design, anything like that. What REI had at the time were uh, uh, creative designers, um, more marketing or brand designers. And then what I did was like, essentially, I had deliverables that were not sort of uh, typical SEO work. I was, you know, sitting right next to our taxonomist. And so I would uh, do all this research and try to influence how we built out the product taxonomy for REI. So that customers would be more successful doing things like using search to find products, meaning search on our actual website, but also with an eye towards Google search as well, because uh, we know that a lot of people come in through the side door and they don't just go to our homepage and you know follow a happy path through some campaign. Um, they want to get right to the, the thing that they're looking for. We also did a lot of um, what we call, what Aria calls expert advice. So uh, that's taking um, all the great, like really strong outdoor knowledge about uh, places and gear and activities um, and sports that um, REI employees have and then putting that, making that like available digitally. So um, putting that on the website, speaking with like a real, a real strong branded REI voice, but always keeping it just super straightforward and accessible. So like anyone could use this to get into some new activity space. For me, when I joined REI, I was climbing like I'd never climbed before. I had no idea what I was doing. But I just by talking with my colleagues and working through this expert advice, like I was able to like go to a climbing gym and oh, these are the kind of shoes I need. And here's the harness. And here's some like introductory techniques I can try out. And here's how I know when I'm in trouble, stuff like that. This is like the the user research part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by roles that have you jumping from super high level to super low level. In fact, last week, Marshall and I were talking about this exact topic, which is like, how do you navigate from talking about overarching like information architecture and and the strategy of aligning all these different things for a brand as big as REI? And now you're digging all the way into the weeds on like, what do we call the specific labels on the website so that it's most clear, like what this product is or where where it belongs? Were you finding yourself jumping from that high level to that low level quite often? Oh, absolutely. You know, most organizations, you know, don't have a real, a really good sense of like, let's call it their information ecosystem, or sometimes let's call it a, a domain model. You know, they don't know what information they have, how it all connects to itself, um, how people in the organization use it, what their workflows are like. And that makes sense to me because none of that shows up on the website, right? Like none of that is in the product. And yet it is while orthogonal, it is essential to help people actually build the product. Um, and so someone who's like an information architect um, our domain modeler will spend a lot of time just trying to figure out how does the organization know what it knows 
what are the workflows involved, things like that. So REI is where I began to learn about um, what I now think of as um, systems thinking and systems design, where you try to get a sense of like, what are all the objects in the system? And an object can be anything. Let's call it an entity even. Um, and it's not just like an information entity, like, oh, here's a, a jacket or here's a, uh, a style or an attribute, like it's waterproof. Attributes can be people. So like, here's where merchandisers, you know, go out and talk to uh, uh, manufacturers who make these jackets. You know, here's here's how a jacket comes into our inventory. Um, and then here's how uh, we describe the jacket on the website and how we um, enter all of its attributes into our database. Here's where all that data lives. Here's how the jacket gets to the store. Here's how someone buys the jacket in the store. Here's how someone buys it in their website. So like all these different actors from customers to different kinds of business units um, to you know warehouses to stores, things like that. Those are all entities in the system. So once you have your entities, you have to figure out how they're connected. And, you know, that's that's all of those transitions, all of the actual physical movement, all of the relationships involved. And then the final thing is to figure out, okay, I have entities, I know how they're related. And now how do those relationships provide value? Because that's where you can begin to understand how to best optimize a system. And uh, that was something I started doing at REI has been essential uh, to how I think about product. And uh, I got to practice that a lot at Facebook as well. And now definitely even more at Intercom. Well, okay, so let's jump to Facebook, but I, I want to almost complicate your entire system a little bit. Like, <laughs> let's, let's jump to Facebook first. So how long did you end up staying at, at REI doing this kind of work? So all that work was really only in, like the principal experience architect role. That was only my last year at REI. Um, I had pursued a master's degree in information management from uh, University of Washington because I, I, I had just gotten so excited about the, these ideas of structure and information management and architecture and modeling and design that you know I, I, I wanted more of a basis to work from. Um, and so it was in my last year that I did this uh, principal experience architect role where we worked on things like... Um, this domain modeling, um, we worked on um, workflow development for a new CMS that we were transitioning to at the time. We tried to come up with information standards for the entire business, not just for like the digital product, things like that. I see. And when did Facebook enter the picture here? So uh, it was while I was at REI that I began to do a lot of uh, public speaking. They were happy for me to you know, tell the story of our work, how we were shifting from SEO uh, to IA and UX. I began to build sort of this uh, following of SEO people, um, many of whom like still follow me for some reason, even though I never talk about SEO. I I'm assuming there is an SEO Twitter and like there's SEO Twitter drama that happens oh, weekly. <laughs> big time. Oh, yeah. Think about design Twitter and then make it even more sexist. Oh. It's, uh, oh, it's no. really, oh, shit. yeah, it's, it's something. Sorry. Sorry, good SEOs out there. I, I know you're, you're doing a good job. But public speaking was something that really appealed to me um, for two reasons. One is because I'm an introvert which I know is not the most intuitive link. But like if we uh, were to be having this conversation in person, I'd probably be like standing in the corner. Like I have a hard time making small talk, but on a stage with a prepared story, with a narrative arc, especially if it's something that, you know, I really care about. Um, I really enjoy sharing the kinds of things that I've learned, um, helping people 
enter the discipline and get started in the work. And um, speaking is just such a such a great way to do uh, to do that to to give back to the community. Totally, I, th- I think I'm probably in that same boat. Not that I do public speaking, but it, the couple times that I have done it, I found it incredibly one one of the biggest benefits is that I no longer have to go up to people to talk to them. Like, I think people <laughs> right, want to just right. chat with speakers. So people will come up to you and, yep. and have questions and like removes this whole burden of, you know, having an icebreaker and walking up to somebody and, and doing that whole dance. So I used to think it was because I was lazy and I, I just didn't want to do this. Oh, well, but, that's later. <laughs> <laughs> well, but no, it's a real thing. Later on, I learned like those things are hard for a certain kind of person. And I'm, I'm definitely that certain kind of person. Yeah. So yeah, I actually did this whole blog post about like, uh, why introverts make great public speakers. But the point of the story is that it was while I was doing this public speaking that I got invited to speak at a content strategy conference, which at that point um, was still uh, a a relatively new um, but quickly growing field. And they wanted to know how they could use SEO to um, increase the impact of their content strategy work. And it was there that uh, I met people from Facebook and began to become really interested in this work they were doing that I think of as UX writing. And uh, they had this growing content strategy team and uh, they were, you know, drawing people from all over the world uh, to work as part of it. And I ended up talking with them for a while, getting pretty excited about it. And uh, I joined them. What did you find was the biggest change going from an organization like REI, which is certainly a company that uses technology to what we'd probably more traditionally call a technology company, right? Like Facebook is in the tech industry you know, a little bit perhaps exclusively digital. Like what was the transition like for you there going from, from REI to Facebook? I think, yeah, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's that, um, you know, REI, at least at that time, again, I was there from like, uh, when did I leave? I left in 2013. REI still considered themselves to be that um, small, do-good consumer cooperative that uh, grew up in West Seattle and, you know, was taking the nation by storm, by God. And um, and they were really good at that. Like, they're really good small retailer and they wanted to become a much larger retailer. And... Uh, uh, the problem, or one of the problems anyways, uh, at least that I saw, is that, you know, even in 2008, 2013, those years, you know, you could kind of tell technology was a thing um, and it was not going to go away. It was not just a fad. Um, technology was um, pervading the ways people worked, uh, but also the ways they, you know, when they were not at work. It wasn't just, you know, some sort of tool used for a few hours a day. It was uh, infiltrating everything. REI did not consider themselves to be a tech company. And so they missed a lot of opportunities, things like uh, mobile apps, um, things like, uh, like there's no reason why uh, REI should not own your entire outdoor experience. Um, they could have built for that um, in the moment where the market was really open. They didn't have a lot of competition. And, you know, with a little more future facing thinking, um, they would have been extremely successful. But, you know, they didn't consider themselves to be a technology company or a media company, and they considered themselves to be a merchandising company. And that really affected the kinds of things they would invest in and, and how they how they did business, um, which is okay. You know, everyone has to find their own destiny. Sure, sure. But that's really what attracted me to a company like Facebook, which was um, obviously, you know, very technology first 
you know, very interested in things like um, markets and uh, solving problems, helping people connect some of those themes that sort of were continually coming up in my life. And uh, it was a great chance for me to learn about product and uh, to work with a really strong product team, really strong design team on that thing where I had always sensed that there would be opportunity, but hadn't really had the chance to invest in it. Yeah. I want to spend a little time here. So I, uh, in my time at Facebook, I pretty sure this is still true, but content strategy was under the design org. Is that still correct? It moved around a bit. So when I joined, it was actually part of marketing and then later shifted into design. Got it. And the only reason why that matters, because by and large, like the, the work didn't change all that much, but there were incentives around like, you know, what kinds of things do we focus on in experience? Who who supports us? Like meaning like when, when we want to take a stand on something, sort of who has our back and who doesn't, uh, things like that. So, you, you know, reporting change chains kind of kind of matter for things like that yeah it totally mattered and and i found you know even just uh where we sat so i I think my desk was next to a content strategist on the product team and and we were very much integrated we would do user research together Uh, like the whole journey from start to end was very much driven and influenced by content strategy and i don't think it's that way everywhere (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. That seems rare. I'm I'm curious what your perspective was, you know, having come from this role, you said it was just you and like the data architect and the information architect. And now it's like, oh, there's product designers and researchers and engineers, and I'm sitting in the middle of all of them. Like, how did you find that that changed your work or, or the way you thought about content? Well, the most important part is that like, uh, I just felt like I had a sense of community and, and I was with these people who they, they didn't just get it. Um, they were much smarter than me for one thing, because like, this was like their first or second career, um, and not their fourth or fifth, like it is for me. Um, so, uh, they were younger and smarter and that's always a great environment to be part of. But I think the other thing was just how fast it, it grew and how much it scaled. Uh, when I joined Facebook in 2013, I, I think I was like content strategist number, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something, which is already a really big team. Many, many teams at many product companies even uh, are not even that big. And that's now in 2019. Yeah, try like zero, right? Yeah, exactly. But Facebook's content strategy team is now, I mean, I haven't been there for a year, but it's its well over 300. That's crazy. And, uh, they work all over the world. The product design team as well. Like when I joined, I, I think it was less than 100, like maybe 80, maybe less than that. And uh, and as for everything that Facebook built, and now uh, I'm sure it's over a thousand. So what's your, like, we'll call it macro perspective here. What's driving this growth and, and the industry's broader perspective on the role of content strategy in, in products? Like what's driving all this? So I think some of this comes from um, the ascent of agile development. So Agile sort of took away the ability for organizations to have, uh, you know, a person who only did like UX and a person who only did interaction, a person who only did visual design uh, and a person who only did copy uh, or, or things like that. Right. Because there just wasn't, a, you know, investment in staff or time to have all of those roles for every single Agile, you know, work stream, let's say that your, your company might want to have. And the work greatly accelerated as well. So things like research really suffered because of that. And so companies started to move towards this idea of like, okay, well, what what might a full stack designer, and I hate using that phrase, but like... Oh boy. Right? People have feels about this. There's a feelscape. But what, you know, 
how could we get all of the best parts of all of those roles in one person? <laughs> and, and I feel like that's where a lot of product design came out of is, you know, you need someone who can think through um, everything, every part of the process, you know, people who are really strong at understanding the problem and validating it um, and getting a, a team aligned and engaged around it. And then, you know, doing the traditional double diamond work on uh, hypotheses and solutions for, for people who don't know, could you describe the double diamond? Yeah, so the double diamond uh, is this process by which many designers work where there's essentially these um, repeating patterns of uh, diverging and then converging around problems and solutions. So you could think of it as two diamonds that are right next to each other. So they're sort of linked um, horizontally. And uh, you start with observing and sort of taking in new insights and information, which expands your uh, understanding of the problem. Um, so you're diverging there and then you converge around defining the aspects of it that are, you know, for whatever reason, the most meaningful to you or the most important or have the most insights that help you best take action on it. And that's only the first diamond. And you arrive at having sort of this problem statement, and then you move into solutions thinking and hypotheses. So uh, again, you diverge where you um, are generating lots of ideas and, and thoughts around how you might approach this, um, ways of interacting with the problem or uh, uh, improving the situation. And then you converge again uh, as you begin to do things like um, you know build out your prototype, test some of those assumptions and hypotheses. Uh, begin to understand what's going to be the best uh, uh, solution for your audience. Uh, and eventually you arrive at that solution, which you then build out and ship. But uh, those are the two diamonds of uh, the double diamond process. And, you know, we were talking about this last week as well. We, I think the, the title of the episode was The Death of the Unicorn Designer. Ah, uh, yeah. It's pretty crazy to expect a person to be able to go through this right like oh absolutely this double diamond is the result of you know collaboration among many roles especially research content product design and engineering right if i were to do that off the top of my head so yeah expecting one person to be brilliant at all of those is kind of a stretch Oh, absolutely. Right. But I, I think that agile is sort of what, what brought us to this point of like, yeah, you know, everyone should be full stack. I mean, engineering faces the same things, like where you need to be a back end engineer, a front engine engineer, like you, you need to know all these different languages. Like it's difficult, um, especially in any kind of move fast environment. It's super difficult. Yeah. And. I think what people found is that, you know, there are people who are really strong um, at, you know, sort of these design processes. There are people who are really strong at research. There are people who are really strong writing and communication and structure, but they're not usually the same people. <laughs> and so I think that's where you start to see this UX design and then UX writing sort of shift happen. So let me hit you with a, a hypothetical that's not totally uh, my background, which is, Imagine a young product designer that wants to be able to do everything and they think that they're really good at words and they're making interfaces and, and they want to sort of build the whole thing. They want to be the person writing the copy and the labels and, and making that onboarding flow super smooth or making the product sound delightful and feel friendly. Uh, I think I certainly have fallen into that and, and probably many other product designers and switching off the hypothetical, uh, when I joined Facebook, I was like, oh, there's actually people who are way better at doing this. I should just collaborate with them. 
I'm curious what your experience was actually getting to into the weeds with product designers and if you found resistance, perhaps from someone like me who, who thought they could do it all, or if it was a much more natural sort of transition into to working together? No, you know, the beautiful thing about like a, a move fast style team is that there's often not time to argue, right? Like you're, you're really focused on like delivering the solution or understand that like you're, you're focused on the work and the results and the impact. Uh, that was certainly true at Facebook uh, when I was there. So I think the friction was relatively rule was relatively low in terms of like basic job functions, but where the friction got high um, was, well, because language is political and it's political in a way um, that design sometimes isn't, I think, because, you know, you look at um, some, you know, really well done product design and you don't, you know, most people don't immediately think like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> Uh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. But when you look at words, specifically microcopy words, so meaning just like a label or, you know, a piece of navigation or a call to action or uh, maybe even something as long as an error message, people definitely feel like that is something they can do. They have strong feelings about it. Um, it gets very political very quickly. And uh, it, that, you know, it's great that people are invested and engaged and want to give input. And a lot of the best input will come from um, engineers who uh, are actually building out the product system or designers who are building out how the product works. But um, I think the key here is that what content strategists are trying to do is to not handle every solution as a bespoke one-off piece of information. Yeah. They're trying to get to the system that's really connected and standardized and uh, consistent so that people always know what to understand or um, what really matters and uh, they're always able to understand what's going on. Okay, I have so many questions, but... Yeah, me too. <laughs> I got to jump back to earlier when you were talking about this like crazy, crazy system that you were navigating at REI. It's like you have all these parts and ways of referring to things and how does this span the entire sort of life cycle of a customer all the way to, to interfacing with an employee and then down to the warehouse at facebook you suddenly and probably at rei too you layer in all of a sudden internationalization and tone and a system for tone seems like an entirely separate beast of not only what are we saying but how are we saying it consistently so yeah when did that sort of dawn on you like oh my god everything also has to work and feel the same across language and personality yeah it's hard right and that's like one of the key aspects for what makes it hard is that you're not just writing as the voice of you know, facebook you're also responding contextually to uh whatever it is uh someone's going through as they use the product and uh, that means that you have to take context into account. You need to be very contextually aware and you need to understand how people understand things so that, you know, you don't sound the same when someone completes an onboarding flow and you're like really celebratory and like, hey, good job. You got this. Let's get you started on next steps. You don't sound the same way there as you do in, say, the error message where someone's <laughs> lost some work and, you know, maybe they have to go back and start over this thing they're working on. Yeah, you fucked up. <laughs> yeah, you fucked up. <laughs> you get to start all Ain't over. that something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? But I also like, I don't know, uh, I, I really dislike when content strategists are, are very precious about their work. I think this is something that actually hurts collaboration with other kinds of roles. 
And so this thing with tone that, you know, on the one hand sounds really confusing and, and complex and structured and challenging. I might even say subjective. Definitely subjective. Yeah. But, you know, design faces this too. Um, and anyone who's ever had to develop a design system or uh, in particular, like a color palette, mm-hmm. color is a lot like tones in language. I, I see that as being pretty difficult and uh, something that takes a lot of thinking and a lot of testing and work. Um, and research as well. But these are, these are not unlike things. Um, I think most product disciplines, uh, that focus on interfaces have to grapple with this. So I don't think something like tone is unique just to content strategy. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you a different, a way that they're different is that specifically with color, we can program our like engineering systems to prevent you from using the wrong color. (laughs) And I don't know that that necessarily exists for content. Maybe there's like a blacklist of words or something. But uh, for the most part, like I can, you know, put whatever I want on a button and it might be up to somebody to stop me or or jump in and and catch me. So I'm wondering what processes you found were effective there for actually like systematizing tone and making sure that people were using it. But also, as you mentioned, like not being precious about it and not being the police, the tone police. Right, right, right. exactly. Yeah, and I think this kind of goes along with a question I had, maybe you can roll it in, which which is basically like, is it helpful to get a placeholder word or, or phrase from the designer who, you know, isn't isn't doing the final uh, string, but like, is, is that initial hint of like where this should generally go, is that helpful or is that box in your idea of, of what this you know, string should ultimately be? So in regards to, you know, having this uh, system whereby, you know, someone can't just sort of change the color willy-nilly, you know, when I left Facebook, they had built up what they were calling a content engineering program to the point where content strategists were um, coding their own content and running their own A-B tests. And uh, it was Julie Patterson who was leading leading that. And, uh, and it was this great effort um, because it brought them a lot closer to engineering and ultimately to product. One of the things uh, Julie was working on was a linting system so that when people were actually writing content within code, they would get contextual signals and information about like, Hey, you know, there's this term you're using, but that's not the standard term, meaning like you're calling this thing that we call something a different thing. Um, like here's, here's what we call this thing. You should use this thing. Yeah. We say see all, not view all or show more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or this is newsfeed, you know, uh, capital N, capital F, two words. It's not newsfeed, all lowercase, one word, things like that. Title and sentence case. Oh, man. <laughs> so, but like that sounds really hard. But like, you know, if you have a terms database of stuff like that, which would include all those usage details, and you have an API for it, then you can build that into Sketch, right? Because they have this really mature plugin uh, system. And so you could even like essentially have uh, someone who's designing a product you know, essentially run that version of spell check um, and get some of the basics right in terms of like words to use, words to avoid, how they're used, things like that. Huh. Okay. I, I do see that how this evolves into Marshall's question, though, which is like assuming a lot of our listeners don't work at Facebook, hopefully the majority, and we don't have systems like that. Like, how do we navigate that the same problem without that tooling? And I think without the tooling, we fall back on process and I'm curious your take on the process here of working with designers to get the right words in place, to to have the right tone. When does that process start? 
uh, when is it counterproductive? Yeah, so I think uh, to some degree avoiding warm ipsum or the placeholder <laughs> content <laughs> is uh, is usually the right approach. Meaning that, like, obviously, you know, if there's going to be text as part of some component, like you, you got to have something there. But like, it should be something contextual and that you might actually use. Because um, I'm thinking about like how often is someone just cut and pasted a component like directly into a design or into a code and and like that's what they ship. So that's one thing. I think the other thing, though, is that what's difficult about having these roles that are so um, segmented and, and so like separate from each other is that um, you get to the point where where no one wants to be, which is where like design is only focused on design, uh, kind of strategy is only focused on kind of strategy, engineering is only focused on code. I, I don't think that's a good setup. I don't think that's the best way to build product. I, I think people should be incentivized to learn about each other's roles, to feel free, to give feedback or share insights about what they're seeing and experiencing and teams um, should be taken and considering that feedback. One of the things we're doing at Intercom that's a little bit different is that we fundamentally think that content designers and product designers um, should be able to do most of the same things at um, a pretty good level of quality. So what we call at Intercom a content designer is much different than, say, a content strategist who's just doing what I think of as UX writing, like writing the interface at another organization. Our content designers are, um, you know, they're laying out flows of interfaces. They are just as good in, uh, we use Figma in Figma as your product designers would be. Um, they're working from our design system, even contributing back to it. Um, they're mapping out complex systems, all sorts of things that we might ordinarily associate with product design. And we sort of believe this sort of casually, like informally for a while. And then we actually ended up deciding that like, hey, you know, if we actually believe in this, we should codify this and use it as a way to attract the right people to the roles and to also hold people accountable. So we built it into our uh, job expectations and, and job levels so that now content designers and product designers just share the same job levels document. A person who's working as a senior product designer um, is accountable for almost all the same things that someone who's working as a senior content designer is. And we found that that produces a lot better partnerships and a lot better outcomes for the product as well. You know, you have your outcome. I want to learn more about that. But the, what jumped out to me immediately as you're talking through this is first reaction, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Second reaction was, does that get confusing to have two roles with different titles share so much overlap? Like where does that break down or perhaps people might butt heads or or in maybe the opposite way, like they don't interact because they assume the other person's doing it? Like where does that sort of overlap fall apart? Well, everyone, you know, works really closely together. So hopefully they're they're talking and being upfront about like what they're seeing and then they're not just making assumptions. But what we see is that people naturally gravitate towards the things that they're strong in. Um, so the content designers still will sort of have ownership over things like, um, you know, the, the surface level writing and uh, things like information architecture. And the product designer would have ownership over, you know, final interaction design, um, anything we contribute back to our design system, things like that. 
um, the product designer is going to uh, be a little bit more focused on um, visual polish. Content designer will be a little bit more focused on um, visual communication. But so far, I mean, like what we found is that this actually this frees up content designers to uh, get out of like just doing the word box. And it also frees up product designers um, who may not feel as uh, strong or supported in doing this kind of work. Uh, like UX writing, but uh, they end up developing uh, these skills along the way um, and become much better product designers because of it. And what we see is that um, rather than having people butt heads, um, this actually leads to like better outcomes in terms of what we're shipping right now because both roles are incentivized to care about it. And so you don't just have a content designer who's like, doing those final, you know, spell checks or did we get this capitalization right? Or did we say the same thing in the same way everywhere? Or is this, you know, is X concept clear? Um, the product designer is also incentivized to care about that. So um, they're both working together hand in hand to make that happen. So then in that world, if we were to go back to Marshall's earlier question about like, is it useful for designers to like take a first stab? It sounds like the intercom setup, it's not even considered necessarily like a first stab that's going to get overwritten later. It's like that could be the actual content that ships. Well, it's more like, you know, there's there's give and take in these roles. So um, there's going to be some projects where um, doing content first design just makes sense as a way of starting, because why, why wouldn't you? It just seems obvious to us. There are going to be other times where um, it's going to be, uh, you know, something more structural or visual that the product designer will do. But what we found is that when the roles are incentivized to care about the same things, when they're aligned around the same principles, meaning like how they make decisions, when they both have the same sense of like, hey, what's what's sort of the quality zone for this work? How do we know when we're when it's good? They actually work better together. We have far fewer content designers at Intercom than we do product designers. So not every product team has sort of this dyad of product design and content design. But when they do, it's essentially like they have two designers working on the product. And so we reserve the content designers for like our most strategic or impactful things where there's also opportunity um, for content design impact. You said content first design somewhere in the middle there. Could you explain a little more what you mean by that? We hear a lot of X first designs and and it always seems to be related to like whoever's saying it, their profession. You know, it's like engineering driven design, test driven designs, like whoever's doing it, that's their opinion of the best way to design. So yeah, tell me what you mean by content driven design. So let's say you're working on some uh, sort of project that involves, I don't know, say, um, information architecture, you know, some some you need to solve some sort of problem where information and uh, its contextual meaning and flow and interpretation that that's all sort of at the center of this problem. It probably makes more sense to start with what we call a content first design approach, um, where someone who's in that content design, content strategy, UX writing, whatever it is, whatever their title is, role, um, is considering that space first and takes the first crack at um, trying to understand what the problem is, um, trying to align the team around that problem uh, by doing validation work. Um, and coming up with a really crisp, clean problem statement that uh, can align the rest of the team on like, what's the path forward here? We know what the problem is. And if it is, in fact, an information or, or a content problem, that uh, content designer will be really well suited to help the team understand it and then take really productive next steps towards uh, solving it. Got it. Okay. 
Is there anything that you're finding isn't working with with some of the changes that are being implemented at Intercom? Like if, if you could fix one problem with how this role works there or, or maybe perhaps content strategy more broadly? Like what's not working right now? Yeah, I'd love to talk about content strategy more broadly. I'm highly opinionated on this and uh, probably probably kind of an asshole. So uh, <laughs> I look forward to the eventual uh, design Twitter tarring and feathering. I look good in feathers. So here's what I think doesn't work. And you've both probably worked in scenarios like this. And I know many content strategists and product designers out there have, which is, you know, content strategy is sort of often pitched as being like the nurse to uh, the doctor of product design. Content strategists are sometimes um, perceived as being like the junior designer, whereas the product designer is the senior designer. Content strategists are, are sort of often uh, in the role where their decisions are overruled or overwritten by product designers, not just product designers, but like engineers or product managers, um, because they all have the sense that like, hey, I know how to write good. I can write good. Um, I'm just going to I'm going to change this because I don't think it sounds right. There's this sort of industry wide thing where like, like if there is the, the low person on, on, uh, in the hierarchy, it's, it's going to be the content designer, the content strategist. And I'm not here to do the like, woe is me, like, oh, have pity. It's, it's more just that I want the content strategy community to step up and to better understand these other roles on the teams that they're working with. Part of the reason why I wanted to move content design at Intercom um, closer to product design and to define that, you know, even in our like job levels and expectations and, you know, build into the way we do um, performance reviews and hiring and interviews and all that is because I also want everyone else at Intercom to know what content designers do and are held accountable for because they are not junior designers and they are not, you know, nurses to the surgeons of product design. Um, they are just as talented and capable. Let me hit you with this. Are content strategists paid the same amount? Ah, that is a great question. Generally speaking, no, they are not. And at Intercom, because uh, as I've already mentioned, we hold content designers and product designers accountable for working in the same way, following the same principles, using the design system, like all of those competencies and expectations are the same. We do pay them the same, um, and I would love to see other organizations do that as well. Yeah, so give, give me some tips. I, I don't know exactly what our audience is here. I, I think our audience is probably going to skew more product design, like less content strategy. So I wanted to initially ask, like, what should content strategists who are listening do to sort of bolster their position within an organization that maybe perceives them as that junior role that you described? But since our listeners are perhaps more on the side of product design, like give us tips on ways we can work with content or better understand it besides the conversation we've had so far, but like ways to, to help content strategy sort of navigate that that perception that it has. Yeah. So, you know, product design uh, is more mature than uh, content strategy or content design because uh, it's, it's been a field longer. Um, and so uh, I know you're familiar with this conversation around, you know, earning your seat at the table. That's something that content strategy and content designers are beginning to do. So I think like some of the ways that folks can help is for content strategists, um, getting out of working in documents and getting into working in um, product design tools is really helpful. 
I know that like it's like one of the easiest things you can do to earn your um, product designer's admiration is not just to work in you know Sketch or Figma, but to actually produce your own content prototype. Maybe use Framer for that. You know whatever your tool of choice is. Um, if you have an idea and you know you can show how you understand the problem and how this aligns with um, you know the goals and the strategy, you know the more you can do to sort of prove that out on your own, uh, speaking the language of design and using the tools of design um, will help you go a lot further. So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, and again, like you see design doing this as well, is um, learning how to code. So anytime that either a product designer or a content designer can uh, code their own work, um, especially where it's like minor fixes, like, oh, here's this bit of CSS that's wrong, or, uh, oh, we use the wrong term here, or it's capitalized, or, you know, whatever the thing is, you know, that does take an engineer away from solving what is probably going to be a harder and more strategic problem. It takes them out of flow. So if you, the product designer, you, the content designer, can do that work on your own, um, do that pull request, commit the code, a- again, great way um, to earn the uh, attention and respect of other people on your product team. It's one of the ways that you show up with commitment and dedication so people know you're in it you're not just working at your discipline talking to you know design twitter you uh actually care about the product and want to see the best product outcome so you're willing to learn um aspects of someone else's discipline to make that happen well actually speaking of that then what are tips for product designers today who are let's just assume they're great at visuals or great at interaction prototyping but when it comes to the words it's actually quite a challenge uh, do you have like resources or strategies here to actually improve the way you think about writing interface copy and, and content strategy for product in general? One of the books that we really like at Intercom, and I get a copy of this for everyone who joins my team, is this book called Thinking in Systems by Danella H. Meadows. And it's just a brilliant book. And like it's the kind of thing I wish I had read in school. I think it came out in like late 2000s, maybe 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Anyways, what this helps all roles do, and I think this is particularly powerful for product design, is understand the systems underlying the things that we're building or the problems we're solving. So there's this notion in product design that I think comes from Donald Norman, where he says, you know, design isn't here to make things pretty or or look good. I mean, if they are pretty, hey, that's great. But what design is really here to do is to determine how things work. And if you're in that business of determining how things work, then essentially what you need to do is practice systems thinking, because almost any action you take in some sort of ecosystem like a product ecosystem or a platform or a marketplace or or whatever it is, is going to affect other things in that system. And so what we were talking about earlier, this idea of like entities in the system, the relationships, the value of those relationships, that all comes from systems thinking. And uh, Danella Meadows' book is a great resource for getting started in that. Once you once you learn how to diagram a system and, and practice systems thinking, you won't want to stop. You will you will see systems everywhere, and you'll better be able to understand things like not just your products, but like the politics at your company, um, how a grocery store works, 
um, highways, uh, really pretty much everything. So I could become a grocery store designer is what you're saying. All designers are grocery store designers, <laughs> I believe. Uh, Jerry Spool said that. No? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's that famous <laughs> quote. Wasn't it like a Johnny Ive? Yeah. yeah. So one other thing um, that's a little bit simpler than getting into systems thinking and reading this this book, even though it is a great book, is joining the um, content design kind of strategy community, which is a great way to understand the people doing this work, what they care about, how they're incentivized, um, and how the particulars of their setup might be different than yours um, or mine for that matter. So a um, great way to do that is uh, there's a webpage at contentstrategy.com slash community, which uh, when you go there, you'll see links to a number of premier content communities. There's a, a great Slack group called Content and UX. There's a, a Facebook group for content strategists. There's one on LinkedIn. Um, but even better than all those things is your local meetups, um, because most towns of, of, uh, you know, sort of city size will have like a content strategy or UX writing uh, meetup. I run the one here in Dublin, actually. And, uh, it's a great way to just like get to know people doing this work and, and talk to them directly with these questions. So that's the other thing I would pass on. For the sake of time, since it is getting a little bit late, I think it's, uh, getting close to 10 PM your time. I want to ask two really dumb like tactical questions that i encounter frequently as a designer yeah and then we should get into cool things all right so first tactical question uh, i want your opinion on self-referencing a product within a product uh for example so I, I work at github is it weird to say like your github notifications or this is like a github feature like, how do you feel about self-referencing in that way? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Actually, one more piece of context here. I think this has always been on my mind since I worked with the Messenger team because they had a rule that they never said the word Messenger in the product of Messenger. <laughs> that's great, actually. Well, you know, uh, it's a pretty bad answer to say it depends. So <laughs> let me go on oh, Let no. me go on record and, and actually have an opinion then. I wonder if there is a way that you can make clear that like those notifications are in the context of something that you're already doing on GitHub and then just like link to them, which would like sort of close the loop and making sure it's absolutely clear we we're talking about GitHub notifications, not say Facebook notifications or something like that. That would be my first instinct would be like, how can we strive for less? A good way to make that decision, incidentally, so that it's not a one-off, is actually to um, write a series of principles that cover this sort of work. So like at Intercom, we have these content design principles. One of them is what we call strive for less, which is to be as short and simple as possible, but no simpler. So we always try to be just simple over being technically correct or even functionally complete. Like we will always go for the simpler option, but we try to balance that with um, not leaving out things that we know people need to know in order to make a good decision. So you could, um, so that you answer this question or the, you know, arrive at the same de design solution each time, you could um, come up with a series of principles that help you and other product designers or UX writers uh, to, to guide your work. Yeah, that's, that's good. And then, yeah, the, it depends is always the hard part there. Uh, second tactical question. Let's say you're designing an application where in the top right corner, there's a little profile of you. And if you, you click on that, it's going to take you to your profile. Oh, you mean like on GitHub? No, anywhere. Like just imagine any hypothetical product. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, designing, you're designing this. My profile or 
your profile. Oh, the my versus your. I, I get what you're saying. My notifications, your notifications. Yeah. There's actually a really good post about this by John Saito, who is a UX writer at Dropbox. I'm, I fall strongly into the your camp here. Um, I don't think interfaces should say my because then the, the actor who is the me becomes really unclear really quickly. Um, and even if you're like, well, it's not that unclear, it's still a moment of disruption. And I think we'd all agree that like, hey, we, we'd rather avoid that. Like, why make them think? Uh, actually, to that end, uh, one of our other content design principles at Intercom is don't make me think. It's uh, the Steve, basic Steve Krug, you know, like remove the ambiguity, remove the conflict. Don't be clever. Just be clear. So you would say your profile, your notifications, your everything. I would. Uh, and I'd probably try to go a step further, going back to strive for less with just saying profile <laughs> or notifications. And like, do you actually need the pronoun there? Yeah, I, I think in navigation, you don't need the pronoun. But if you were having sort of supporting copy that says like, in order to do this thing, you need to go visit or hang on, that's a bad example. <laughs> you need to go visit my notifications. Go visit my yeah, notifications. Probably won't work. yeah, yeah, that's a bad one. But yeah, but no, I get what you're saying. Like if it's in prose, it's a lot different than if it's in like an interface label. So sure, of course. Okay, well, those are my two dumb tactical ones. No, those are not dumb tactical questions. I mean, that's like me, you know, do I use a, uh, a sans serif font for this or do I go with, you know, um, uh, uh, serifs? Yeah. Right? Like... The, these these things are not that dissimilar. We think they're dissimilar because it's words and it's not mathematical, but it's getting more mathematical every day. And the people who work in ML and AI can tell you all about that much better than I can. But like, there's going to be a point at which a lot of this feels componentized. And I, and I think that's going to be an interesting time to work. Oh, actually, hang on. I have one more question before we get into cool things. Where is content strategy right now in relation to that sort of AI or machine learning, thinking about A-B testing. What uh, A story here would be, you know, um, a designer thinks that a, a design decision is subjectively better, but for whatever reason performs worse. And you have to make a decision about what the team agrees feels right versus the underlying metrics. I'm curious, yeah, where's content strategy sitting in, in this world of metrics-driven design? That's a good question. That is a great question. I think this actually goes to principles, right? Because if you let metrics determine your decisions for you, then essentially you, you no longer have a strategy. Like you don't know the things you value or why you go X route instead of Y route, except that like the metrics tell you to do that. I think where principles come in is... Um, they help you and your team, your company actually align on the things that you actually value because you um, put in place this guidance on how to make decisions when in particular, you have two competing options. Should I go left or should I go right? Should the button be red or should the button be green? You have two competing options that are otherwise good. Your principles should cover that. They can be influenced by metrics. They can obviously should be influenced by your past experience and what's worked well. But it's your principles that help you avoid known failures and repeat known successes. And so you should take the moment to um, figure those out and to document them, discover and document them, share them broadly, and um, bring them up and create, like continually remind people of their existence and why we value them. I think AI, in terms of replacing the role of product designers, is a, a ways off, but it is a conversation. Like, are the decisions that product designers make every day 
really that necessary like some of the lower level decisions i guess uh, talking about like maybe some layout some um like contrast decisions color decisions like couldn't all of these things be automated i'm wondering if there's a similar concern in the the content world of like actually we could probably just have a computer figure out the right call to action or or is that in conflict with what you just said about principles? No, that's definitely a concern. Like I know that there are AIs out there that are doing like local news stories and people are at the point where like they can no longer tell the difference. (laughs) Did a human write this or did the bot write this? Intercom uh, as a company, we ourselves, we build uh, amongst other things, chatbots that uh, help companies um, provide things like customer support. Uh, or or run campaigns, things like that. So it's it's not just possible. These are these are things that are happening uh, for real in the world. Journalism might be feeling it first, but I'm I'm sure the rest of us will need to adapt to that. I sort of view this in a way, and I'm I may be being overly optimistic here, which is uh, definitely a, a very common fault. But we talked a bit earlier about how you know if you the product designer, you the content designer, can code your own content, then it frees up that engineer to do something harder, more strategic, and and make better use of their flow. I think it's going to be the same thing here. I would like for us to um, build AI and do all this ML work knowingly, like knowing about um, the failures and about how they can be biased um, and produce results that we neither intend nor desire. But I do wonder if we can get some of the simple things out of the way so that we can spend our time doing the harder things. And like, if you think back to a time when product design was much more mechanical a process than it is now, where um, you know you had to you know color your own gradients and uh, uh, draw your own drop shadow, like things like that that you no longer have to do. It's just sort of done with math. Um, you'd probably say that those are good things. And so, if there are algorithms we can use that help us do things like make fewer grammatical mistakes or um, keep our language more consistent um, so that we can focus on really hard problems about like recognizing people, respecting their identities, um, helping to understand their problems so that we can craft better solutions. I, I think that sounds good. Awesome. That's helpful. All right. Well, uh, as you could probably tell, we could keep talking for a long time. I think this is really fascinating. But Uh, We should get into cool things. My cool thing is a film, which I saw last night, but at the time that people are hearing this could have been any number of days ago, but the film is called Parasite. Mm. And boy, oh boy, here's the hard part. I don't want to say anything about it because... Great, cool thing to pick. Yeah, great, cool thing. (laughs) The person who told me about this movie, they said, oh, you should see this movie Parasite. And I immediately reached for the trailer. I'm like, oh, I'll watch the trailer and see what it's about. And they said, no. Don't watch the trailer. Just go in blind. Trust me. So I did that. I went in blind. And boy, oh boy, am I glad that I did. So for anyone who hasn't seen it or has managed to avoid the trailer so far, that's my cool thing. Go see the movie Parasite. Go in blind. uh, Avoid trailers and synopses. What's the genre? Maybe you can give us that much. Is it a horror movie, a thriller, a comedy, a drama? What is it? It is. Will that give something away? (laughs) Ah. I'll say it's 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 not horror. Uh, so based on the title, I thought it would be a horror movie. Yeah, I'll say that. So if you if you are a person who avoids horror movies specifically, it's not that. It is a funny movie. There are comedic parts in it, but it is like deep underlying social commentary mixed with humor, mixed with moments of thrill. Yeah. So probably I would 
err on the side of like it's a thriller more than anything. And this is a, a Bong Joon Ho movie, right? Correct. Like he did Snowpiercer, yes. uh, Okia, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I got to see this. Yeah, that's my cool thing. A little bit cryptic, but I highly uh, enjoyed it. So if anyone sees it and wants to chat about it, message me because I have plans to watch it on Wednesday. Yes. All right. <laughs> Let me know what you think. I'll, I'll be curious if it holds up to critique on it, Marshall. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. So my cool thing this week is my buddy, Michael Boswell, has been working for a long time on an app and they just launched yesterday on Friday and uh, it's an app called Q. It is a calendaring app, but it's like a social calendaring app. So not only can you find out what's going on around you, but you can share with others what you plan to do and they can they can join you in those things, kind of like a broadcast what your plans are. And uh, it's very much focused on only sharing to your friends. This isn't like a four square type thing where you check into places it's more you know it's like hey i'm, I'm gonna do this pickup basketball game anybody want to join me that kind of thing so for example i used it to set up a a double date with michael <laughs> to go see parasite on wednesday hey, hey everything combines <laughs> nice but it's beautifully designed uh, he is one of the best designers i know and he put a ton of thought and effort into this thing i think he's the only designer on it he's got a you know a team of engineers and everybody but it's gorgeous and and it works really well. And I think it's a, a kind of a niche that isn't being filled right now, like a social calendar thing. I, I can't think of another example of something like that that's like successful or in wide common use other than like, you know, Facebook events or something like that. So, yeah, well, this might make Michael mad, but if I were to describe this app, like where it sits in the hierarchy of apps, it's kind of like events plus Instagram threads plus messenger all like combined into one product it's like a close friends product built around activities with chat right yeah yeah it's got an integrated chat that automatically creates groups based on events that you've joined or created and and the chat is really good it's it's like og uh, messenger yeah really simple stripped down yeah mm -hmm. but like it's gorgeous yeah so yeah if you're if you're, I think it's probably most effective if you're in a major city because there's enough stuff going around in, in your nearby area that is worth joining. And if you have friends that live in the same city as you, that helps. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's new. I've been waiting for it forever, <laughs> and I'm glad it's out now. And and it seems like it's got a, a pretty positive reception. So I'm I'm proud of him. He he took it from concept to launch. And uh, it's out now in the wild, and people can use it. So Q calendar link in the show notes. But yeah, check it out. Awesome. Jonathan, cool thing. So my cool thing is uh, a book I read recently uh, by Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Oh, shit. Um, and I heard about this on an episode of 99% Invisible. Oh, yeah. And Roman uh, interviewed the author and uh, she talked about everything from like snow plowing a city in Sweden, which was designed around men's commute, but did not at all take into account what women did both before and after work. Um, and so uh, it actually uh, was uh, much more difficult for them, but also far more dangerous. Um, it talked about things like how crash test dummies are uh, designed around uh, men's average height, weight, build, and how children, because there are crash test dummy children units that are used for uh, testing as well, those are basically just um, shrunken like male 
crash test dummies. So because of that, um, women are far more likely to be injured or die in car crashes. It, it talked about the development of uh, stone cooking and um, the setup uh, with cooking pots and stones in the third world. Um, she's done a tremendous amount of research and uh, has found all of these amazing and honestly tragic stories, uh, essentially about how women are left out of design. Um, it's fast read. Um, it's super compelling. And um, if we go back to like what we were talking about earlier with systems thinking, helps you see a side of the system that um, is pretty hard for people like us to see. So I found it super enlightening and would recommend it to everyone. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I recently saw the example that was kind of floating around on Twitter of the space station. It has like little foot grapples that uh, astronauts will stick their feet under so that they can sort of stay stationary or simulate gravity. And the the room around those foot grapples was designed for like the average male height of the astronauts in the program. And so now that there's an increasing volume of, of astronauts that are women, they like can't use the interfaces around them while they're grappled in because it wasn't designed for, you know, this variance of height. Uh, but that was, you know, just to throw one more example on that. But it sounds like this book goes deep into stuff like that. Yeah. And it's not just like you, you know, you ship an update to that. Like it's a space <laughs> station. It's a, some pretty hard architecture. Yeah, firmware update. Yeah. Oh, cool thing. All right. Uh, well, Jonathan, this has been so fun and probably one of our, our longer episodes really appreciate you taking the time uh, to go so deep with us this was great yeah no thanks so much for your great questions i really it enjoyed makes it. sense we know the least about what you do <laughs> so it's good to have the uh, extra time to explain no worries thank you so much again for having me thank you once again so much to jonathan for joining us on the show we hope you enjoyed that interview and we hope you enjoyed this episode let us know what you thought we're on twitter at design details fm before you go if you are a perhaps not a product designer today like maybe you are a content strategist or you're in marketing or product management or even an engineer, engineer yeah but you're interested in moving into a product design role boy oh boy do we have something just for you go to flatironschool.com slash design details flatiron school has a 24-week program that helps you learn the ins and outs of user experience and user interface design with dedicated instructors and a money-back guarantee complete terms for that at flatironschool.com slash terms but go to flatironschool.com slash design details if you want to take that course and level up as a, as a designer and let them know we sent you if you've been enjoying the show you can also back us directly by going to patreon.com slash design details every dollar that you send our way helps us offset the costs of producing the show and it really means a lot and we'll be giving uh, everyone shout outs who backs us uh, so if you head over to patreon.com slash design details, that would mean the world. And if you're still listening and just dying for more podcasts, head on over to spec.fm. We got plenty of shows for designers and developers just like you. Those shows and design details are produced by our editor and producer, Sarah and Drew. Thank you, Sarah and Drew, for another week. Uh, head over to spec.fm for more shows. Otherwise, follow us on Twitter at design details FM. And we'll catch you next week. So for my sign-off, uh, Brian recently watched the epic film starring Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze called Point Break. And so in the immortal words of Johnny Utah, Vaya con Dios. 